An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're exceptionally lucky to have as our special guest, Dave Nating. Dave's formal title is Financial Futurist at Vetify, a financial data insight event and analysis firm. Financial Futurist is a title that deserves unpacking, and we'll do that. But it's also one that Dave's earned after a quarter century, both in the trenches and observing the capital markets and investing community. He was managing director of ETF.com. He worked at Barclays. He co-wrote the seminal book explaining exchange-traded funds when ETFs were new. He's been featured on just about every financial television, radio, podcast, and print outlet that exists. I feel like kinship with Dave because he thinks differently. He is both of and yet somehow apart from the financial community. Dave's been exploring hyper-efficiency, distributed cognition, relevance realization, and the state of today's institutions. Those are some complex concepts, and we'll get into at least some of them. But to suffice it to say that one requirement to be a financial futurist seems to me to be the ability to deconstruct today's reality so as to understand what are immutable and therefore enduring human traits and what parts of today's reality are manifestations of technology and social structures which change and therefore will change in the future. So welcome, Dave. Lots to explore. Yeah, boy, with an introduction like that, we got, what, seven, eight hours? Um, yeah, we have until uh, about 2050, <laughs> I think. Uh, so let's start with the past before we get to the future. Sure. What's your origin story? Where'd you grow up? What's the career path to become a futurist? And how did you generally become the f- person you are today? Boy, that's a big, complicated question. But uh, long story short, uh, you know, I was a poetry major in undergraduate in uh, in the mid-80s. Uh, and moved to Los Angeles to write the Great American Screenplay. Uh, ended up becoming, uh, you know, not even writing the Great American cover page and ended up getting sucked into the finance side of the entertainment industry very early, uh, mostly due to a lack of talent to be able to do anything else in the space. Uh, but I actually became very fascinated with how money worked, which was not something I was all that familiar with, uh, you know, sort of going in through college. Uh, I grew up quite... Uh, I wouldn't say poor, but certainly, you know, lower middle class. My parents were, were teachers. We lived out here in the country, uh, largely sort of a hippie existence in Western Massachusetts. Um, and when I got to L.A. and all of a sudden got handed, uh, you know, at the ripe age of 20 years old, the, uh, the payroll for an entire division of ABC and a bunch of money that I was supposed to pay attention to and had no idea how anything worked. Uh, I became fascinated by it and a year or two later went back to Boston University and got my MBA. Uh, and have really been just absolutely riveted uh, by what feels like a largely fictitious bookkeeping system that we've all invented, the human race. Uh, it's just numbers that we, we just decided this was how money was going to work in sort of Western democratic capitalism. 
And I've spent the last, you know, 25 or 30 years trying to deconstruct that. Uh, along the way, uh, you know, I've worked for, um, I was a co-founder at Cerulli Associates back in the very early 90s, where I was learning to talk to financial advisors and uh, try to understand what their business was like. That's been my canary in the coal mine most of my life is the financial advisor market. Uh, that seems to be where the most interesting questions are always being debated, where the most interesting products are being developed, and also where I think there's real healthy skepticism. Financial advisors live in this great position of both having to deal with real people who have real money and therefore all of the anxieties that go around that, but also then having to become experts on the other side of the system. So they sit in that beautiful bridge position. So uh, I spent my, started my career working with financial advisors back at Cerulli, uh, then went and worked at uh, what became Barclays Global Investors and iShares, helping build out some of their retail and ETF businesses. Um, took some time off after the dot-com boom. I had been running a, a mutual fund during the dot-com boom, did very well, then did very poorly, uh, like a lot of people in the dot-com boom, uh, and then came back to ETF.com uh, sort of right before the global financial crisis. Uh, and then have been sort of in the ETF writing punditry and data space pretty much ever since. Let me raise something a little personal. You deal with a lot of people. You speak at a lot of conferences, and it takes a lot out of you uh, because you have a condition that you call neurospicy, which <laughs> is an interesting phrase. You want to explain that and 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 how that affects how you think about people in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I feel like I've had uh, several versions of myself over the years. Uh, probably a critical one was uh, in my very early 20s, I had quite a bad climbing accident. Um, I was rock climbing in Lever's Lead, California, um, took, took quite a long lead fall, landed on my head without a helmet, uh, which is not recommended, uh, and subsequently developed epilepsy after that. Uh, and that really radically changed my life. Uh, it changed my personality. People who knew me at the time would probably tell you that as well. Uh, but but pretty much ever since, and I would say before that, um, I've, I've always had difficulty in big crowds. Um, I think I have certain tendencies of uh, of uh, sort of you know social anxiety disorder. I've always had, particularly since the 90s, have had um, sensory processing difficulties, sort of like being in a large cloud, crowded room and trying to pick out the one person talking. Uh, or being in a big complex visual environment and trying to pick out the three or four things I'm supposed to pay attention to um, has always been quite difficult for me, or I should say for the last 30 years or so has been quite difficult for me. Um, so I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, but certainly uh, the experience of COVID when a whole lot of people became introverts, whether they wanted to be or not, uh, I think was, if, if any, nothing else, a clarifying moment for me because of how, to be blunt, how comfortable I was getting off the road for the first time in 25 years, because I used to just be a 30-week-a-year road warrior for most of my career, not traveling for two years and uh, and working remotely uh, with everybody else learning how to work remotely was a really big, uh, big sort of eye-opener for me. Um, because of my epilepsy, I haven't been working in an office since the 90s anyway, because um, I, I hadn't been driving until a few years ago um, consistently. And, uh, and when we when we went all COVID and we all had to lock in, I felt like I had a whole skill set that I got to show a whole lot of people um, because I'd already been working that way. And and also it it really was my preferred form of social interaction. I'd much prefer to talk to sort of one to seven people at a time than to go to a cocktail party. Being on a stage and talking to a thousand people is a totally different thing. And I'm fine doing that as well. So those in-between spaces where you're 
you know, in a crowded lobby with 35 people who all want to come say hello, which is delightful and wonderful and totally terrifying to me. I wonder whether, you know, there's, there's a sort of superficial flip, you know, what's your superpower and, and people take what are, um, non-normative conditions and, and, and claim their superpower. But I wonder whether or not the need to focus deeply on one or two things at a time actually is helpful to you in trying to discern deeper forms of relationships and things. I, I suspect it's the only reason I have a job at all uh, is, is because of that. Um, I have been a rabbit hole diver uh, really my whole life. I've always been one of those people that you know, gets really into a hobby for six months and goes all the way down the well and sort of reaches the edge of what I want to get to. And then I move on to the next thing. Um, so, you know, a, a, a serial hobbyist, a serial fascination uh, has been part of my life for a long time. Uh, to be blunt, financial services and the way money works and the way markets work has just been the gift that keeps on giving, because no matter how much you think you figured out, uh, if nothing else, somebody crazy is going to invent something new tomorrow that you're going to have to figure out. And chances are, I already have, I already don't know everything, right? Because the world changes so fast that everything I think I knew about how the world worked six months ago is probably already wrong. Okay. So I teased this in the introduction. What is a financial futurist? Uh, well, so it's a, it's a, it's an invented title. When we, uh, when we rebranded under the Vetify moniker, we were sort of trying to figure out what we as a firm wanted to do. And a big part of it was to really help folks understand the context in which they're making decisions. Uh, that can mean understanding data. It can mean understanding behavior. It can mean understanding your options. Uh, but fundamentally, it means understanding how the system works. And so what I think of being a financial futurist to mean is that I look at the world today. I go back and I try to get as much context as I can to understand how we got here. Then I take apart what I'm looking at. So for instance, great day to talk about. It. We're talking about Credit Suisse being bought by UBS. As we're recording this, that's the news of the day. So what did I do this morning? I woke up at 5 a.m. and I made sure I really understood all the capital structure issues inside Credit Suisse. Went down the rabbit hole, reopened a lot of old documents, read prospectuses for all of Credit Suisse's uh, bonds and pricing supplements for their ETNs to make sure that I really understood all the pieces. I, I, I call that knolling. That's the phrase from, from art when you take like a, an old camera and you lay it out on a beautiful white piece of paper and all little pieces are taken apart and then you try to put it all back together again. That's knolling. And I think, that, I think about doing that in any financial environment. So I tried to knoll Credit Suisse this morning, get all the pieces out there, and then put it back together and understand, okay, well, what does this actually mean for the average investor? Uh, you know, and the shorthand there is, well, not very much. I'm, I'm sort of calling this the world's most boring financial crisis because it's very straightforward what's going on. I, that, not to minimize the suffering. Obviously, people lose money. People lose jobs. It's, it's real tragedy for many people. But systemically, this is one of those rare cases where you can take the typewriter apart and you put it back together and you pretty much understood how it was going to work in the first place. The last component of it is then trying to understand the and thus of it all, the sort of the yes and from improv space. So if, again, to use Credit Suisse as an example, okay, we now, you know, I have a sense of where all the pieces fit and what's getting done. What are the implications? How do people mess this up? Because people are what always mess everything up. And in this case, I think you can draw some pretty straightforward conclusions. People are going to look at certain tiers of capital very differently. 
Uh, we're going to rapidly accelerate the consolidation of the global banking sector. That's already been happening. It's going to happen even faster now. Uh, it's going to accelerate the, the sort of regulatory capture of the financial system. All of those trends that we've seen simply get accelerated by what we just saw over the last week. So before we return to the future, let's spend a, a bit on the recent past. Um, what have been the major developments in investing in the last few decades? I mean, let me give you an example that are related to technology. To me, and we were recording this in, in, in early spring, actually on the spring solstice, 2023 in technology. I, my mind is blown that the first iPhone didn't exist 17 years ago. That's not even yeah. a generation. It's changed how we work, play, even how we sleep. And it's hard to imagine a world without, you know, iPhones and their equipment. So in finance, what are the relatively big changes that we may not even think are changes anymore because we take them all for granted so much? Um, well, it's hard for me not to talk about ETFs because I spend most of my career in and, in and around that. But ETFs are really just the instantiation of a larger trend, which is in this. I hate this phrase, but it's true. It's the democratization of investing. It's taking the, the availability of risk and liquidity, which are the two things we want to move around most in this sort of fictitious accounting system we call commerce. Right, those two things and really making them fungible all the way down to the lowest level of investor, the person with a Robinhood account and 50 bucks to invest can now get effectively almost any set of liquidity or, or, or beta exposures available to Warren Buffett. Um, that's pretty incredible. And that is not the case 20 years ago. That is a very recent development. It took the development of the ETF. Uh, it took the development of the technology behind what we now consider sort of modern discount brokerage platforms. Um, it took the development of mobile technologies like you're talking about. All of those things come together to create this sort of seamless access to these risk markets, um, which has profound implications, as we've seen. Um, I think the fact that Silicon Valley Bank effectively went under over the course of a few days largely because of social media, because it, it went around on, not even social media, went around on private WhatsApp groups from, in, from institutional investors saying, yeah, we're pulling. And enough people did that over a day or two that we had effectively a bank run like we have not seen in a very long time, largely as the result of that very same iPhone that's in people's pockets. And I think that's fascinating. That speed of action really does radically change things. I mean, we just took over one of the largest banks in the world on a weekend, right? That's a, that's a, like that never used to happen, right? And I think that, um, I think that that's underestimated. That level of speed of action um, creates all sorts of opportunities to break things in new and interesting ways. Mm -hmm. So what are the challenges facing us today? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I mean, I, my biggest concerns, frankly, are about the sort of nature, the fundamental nature of democratic capitalism. And I use that phrase democratic capitalism very intentionally. Um, there, is, there is something that is quite unique um, about the kinds of representative democracies we have in most of the developed world and the kind of participatory corporate statehood capitalism that goes alongside of those, right? Most of Europe, the US, Japan, et cetera. That kind of democratic capitalism, um, I think, is in a bit of danger because of its concentration. We no longer really have the brakes on capitalism to prevent uh, runaway train outcomes. And we're seeing that in real time. Yes, UBS buying Credit Suisse is great in terms of the fact that we're not going to take down the entire global banking system. 
But all we're doing is further consolidating power in fewer and fewer actors who become more and more systemically important. Um, that's problematic because at some point we ask markets to do too much. And I would say we're already asking markets to do too much. In the US here, we've effectively outsourced most of the social safety net to corporations. Uh, but we, that puts us in this terrible position of now becoming beholden to those very corporations. If you are reliant on companies, not just for payroll, but for all basic services from healthcare to daycare to retirement, then how those companies are run and how they're controlled and their level of regulatory involvement becomes just critical. I don't feel like we have that conversation very much because it's not a short-term conversation. It's not an election cycle conversation. But it, to me, the biggest risks we have are all in that. You know, about 10 years ago now, I was having a conversation with a London business school professor. And so this would have been, I don't know, even more, maybe 2010 or so. And he said, you know, John, what people don't realize is the neoliberal consensus following World War II is breaking down. And the problem is we don't know what the next consensus is. We don't know what we want our institutions to do. We don't know what the philosophy of finance capitalism is supposed to be. Uh, we're, we're in an interregnum where we're waiting for something to replace it. And we don't know what that is. And that's a dangerous place to be. Do, do you feel that way? And if so, what are the, what, what are the, your futures, at least what are the tools we have to start thinking about that? Well, I, so I, I, so I do generally agree with that. I do generally agree that, that there was something special. And, and again, I don't want to sound too Pollyannish about this. There was something unique about that post-war era that I think is largely over. And I think we could probably pick a date, probably the GFC. Maybe you could go back and talk about, I don't know, 19, the early 90s being when it ended. But somewhere in that realm, we can say that that sort of neoliberal post-World War II order. And by GFC, you mean the, uh, the global, global financial, financial crisis, crisis yeah. 2008, so, 2009. Yeah. So somewhere in there, we started recognizing that these organs of commerce that we had thought as being independent and wild west and risky, i.e. the corporation, is no longer that. It is an arm of the state. And I think that is the issue that that we really do need to address. And I, I think, like, I'm not the kind of person who just wants to point out problems and then just say, well, we should change everything. I don't actually think you change things by yelling about them a lot. I think you have to recognize the status quo and recognize where those holes are. The kinds of reactions we've seen in investing tell us where the problems are. ESG, crypto, I think those are the two big ones where you can say, what are these a reaction to? Right? Crypto, to me, is so clearly a reaction to what we've just seen in the banking system. This belief that, uh, that these institutions have become too powerful in our economic lives. Now, whether or not Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever is the right answer for that, I, I find actually not that, that, most, that interesting a question. But the idea of creating alternate ownership structures, alternate financial rails, alternate ways of moving risk and liquidity around makes all the sense in the world because I think the, the corpus capitalist understands there's a problem with the existing system. We're seeing that in real time. ESG to me is the other natural reaction. If corporations all of a sudden become more powerful than governments, which I would argue they already are, uh, then who runs corporations is probably at least as important, if not more important, than who runs countries. Uh, and yet we don't have very many conversations about that except for 
name above the title CEOs like an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos. But for every one of them, there's a hundred CEOs you don't know the names of who are just as important in their fields. What tools do we have at our disposal to address those challenges? What are the techniques? For instance, you've written about, quote, distributed cognition, end quote, and, quote, relevance realization, end quote. First, could you define them? And second, how do you see them coming to our aid? Sure. So, you know, one of the things to think about here, if we're going to think big about it, is what is the role of institutions? Well, the point of an institution, whether it's a government or a corporation or your PTA school board, the point is to bring people and resources together to accomplish a task that is not capable of being accomplished by one individual. It's a very pedantic definition, but that's really the point of an institution. We talk about the institution of a family for the same reason. They do something that one individual really can't do by themselves. Uh, And so when I think about the tools we have, understanding how people get together to do a thing is really fundamental. That's step one. That's distributed cognition, right? When we send a, a, a rover to Mars, there's no one individual who decides where it goes. There's a whole team. There's people who do mapping and people who do control systems and there's people who design the tires and all that works together so that this one thing, putting the rover on Mars, can actually happen and accomplish the science. That's what we do with capitalist systems. That's what we do with governmental systems. That's what we do with charitable systems. Um, I would argue we're reaching a point where we've exhausted how well those instantiations of collective cognition work. Uh, Now, what's the right answer for that? I think a lot of what we see or what we saw out of COVID points in the right directions. Things like uh, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. Uh, You know, you get a bunch of people together. They pool their money. They pool their resources to go buy the Constitution in the most ridiculous example, right? Um, where you know the Constitution Dow is going to buy one copy and then run it around in a truck. Didn't end up happening, but it was a cool idea. Instead, what we end up with is things like, oh, well, there's actually a real estate development group in the Midwest that's buying a Scottish golf course. Like they're literally going to take the deed on a Scottish golf course, and you'll be able to have a membership to go there because you participate in this decentralized autonomous organization. No ID, no membership, nobody knows who you are. You just chose to purchase tokens in this activity that ends up with a golf course. A somewhat ridiculous example, but there's not a very, it's a pretty direct line between doing that and saying, okay, well, we're going to get a couple billion dollars of capital together and we're going to go cure a disease. That kind of stuff's going to happen very quickly. And that's a new way of thinking about collective cognition. It's a new way of thinking about those role of institutions. Um, the, the point of relevance realization, which also comes from the cognitive science field, mostly from the work of a guy named John Berbeke at University of Toronto, the idea is that one of the fundamental skills we're starting to understand of what it means to be human is to filter out what is important from what is not. Just looking around a room, we do that constantly. Oh, the guitar is over there. I like guitars. I paid attention to it but I didn't look at the window shade because I don't care about the window shade. It didn't register. There's no relevance to the fact that there's a window shade because it's not too bright and it's not too dark. That ability to pay attention to what's important is really the er skill of being human. Um, And there's a lot of really interesting work being done on how you train that, whether that's at the military level, like folks doing meditation training for fighter pilots so that they can have faster reaction times in the moment, that's relevance realization. But it's also just learning how to take a breath and how to be better at your job and not yell at your kids. All of those things come from that skill set as well. 
Okay, you mentioned something, so I have to ask you this question, which I've only asked to one other person on uh, the 60-some-odd podcast we've done. What does it mean to be human? Boy, that's a big question. <laughs> what does it mean to be human? Uh, I, I can only answer for myself, but I think that's actually the answer as well, right? I think uh, each of our individual experiences of what it means to be human are exactly that. They are solipsistic. I, I do believe that to a large extent, uh, we are a point of awareness in a black box encased in a skull. And everything else is conditioning and input from the outside world, which we can choose to pay attention to or not. Um, so I'm not going to claim I have all the answers, uh, but I will tell you that, um, you know, if, there, if I can point to one thing in my life that has been critically important, particularly over the last couple of years, it's been some form of contemplative practice, whether that's, a, you know, whether it's a prayer practice, a meditation practice, yoga, exercise something that stops the narrative in your head, which is entirely fabricated, entirely made up. And I genuinely believe there is no primal self that we all carry around like a little magic gem inside our heads. I think that is a matter of conditioning as well. And the more we let that go, the more we engage in practices that help us with ego dissolution, even at the outside edge, even if it's not something that becomes core of your being, I believe that that's an improvement on the human condition. And that's where you learn what it means to be human. You obviously have a very, um, I'd call it a sociologic approach to thinking about the future. It's, it's based on humans. And I'm sure many listeners, when you, you first hear the phrase, find out your future, think about things like artificial intelligence, sure, um, machine learning, blockchain, where does technology fit into your thinking about the future? I just right down the middle, right? I mean, technology is really just a set of, it's just the current set of tools we use to accelerate the human condition. That's all it is. So to me, there's not any difference between AI and a screwdriver. It's just a matter of degree. Um, and where the edges of those tool sets are is always where the most interesting stuff is, right? So like I'm spending a lot of time at AI right now. I mean, I've got a chat GPT-4 AI sitting up in another window over here. Um, you know, I've got a stable diffusion image generator over here. Um, I think some of the most interesting stuff in the world is going to come from that space because it's a tool set we're just learning how to use the same way, not to bridge too hard, the same way that like ETFs were a tool set we were just starting to figure out how to use in 1993. And it took until about 2006 before people really understood what was going on. The same thing is going to happen in AI, except you can probably knock at least a decimal point on the time scale because that's just the way technology works, right? So the AI we're going to be talking about in 12 months, I don't think is going to have anything to do with the AI we're talking about now. I think we'll be well beyond it. Um, when we you know, when we talk about things like quantum computing, then we start getting into the really interesting stuff because we're reaching this point where our tool sets are starting to really interface directly with our understanding of reality. That to me is fascinating. Uh, you know, we we known about quantum mechanics for 110 years at this point. We fundamentally keep proving it over and over again, and we keep denying it culturally and sociologically that this might actually be the truth. This might actually be how the world is put together. And, you know, people, you can tell somebody, yes, so-and-so is building a quantum computer and it's going to, you know, crack cryptography and they can get worried about it. But then you explain to them that the reason it's going to be able to do that is because it's going to be able to simultaneously solve questions in a time disparate space. And you've lost them, but that's the reality of what's going on here. 
So that gap between what we're actually doing with the tools, the actual technology, and our cultural and human understanding of it is I've never seen it wider in my life. And it's really fascinating how that's going to evolve. Why do you think that gap's getting wider? Is it that the technology is advancing quicker? Or are we, in effect, devolving into we like to stick with comfortable narratives and not challenge ourselves? Because frankly, uh, like I've, I've spent most of the last year or two reading a lot of stuff on quantum physics. I think for most folks, it's terrifying, right? You get like when you try to convince somebody that at, a, at the fundamental level, classical reality does not actually exist. You can't convince somebody of that, right? That the pen I'm holding, the screen I'm looking at, they seem too real to be able to tell somebody, well, yeah, but this pen is only real because all of the individual particles, all the quanta in it average out to this in real time continuously. That's a very unsatisfying answer that doesn't connect to the lived human experience we all have very much. But the tools we're going to use to advance society, you know, from quantum computing to fusion to, you know, our understanding of how time works, like all of these things are going to start affecting our day-to-day classical reality. They already are. We just don't like to think about it. We don't want to pay too much attention to it. All right. We've talked about the past, the present, and tools. Let's play a quick game of word association for the future. Sure. I'm going to say a word or a phrase and filter it through the Dave future analysis machine. <laughs> uh, and you tell me what the future state is in 10 or 20 years. 10 banking 20, system. Okay. Sorry, what? The banking system. Canadian is my first answer, right? Largely consolidated to a handful of significant players who are de facto arms of the government. Uh, I think that is the state of the banking system alongside an entire shadow banking system, which will largely come out of crypto. Retail investing. Endemic, right? I think we, we have made it so that you don't get a choice about whether to be an investor anymore. Um, I mean, we even use the word participant in people's 401ks, right? We don't even want people to understand that they have to be investors. So we tell them they can be just participants. It's not the real world. The real world is if you want to have a decent life, you're going to be an investor, a retail investor from the time you learn how to read. And I think it's going to be a matter of another 10 years before we get there. But I think we are going to get there. It's also going to create just enormous haves and have nots. There's going to be another several billion people on this planet who are not retail investors and aren't going to have access to those things. And that's going to just further accelerate the inequalities. Academic theories about investing. All wrong. Like, I think, I think we're rapidly understanding that the foundation of things like modern portfolio theory um, are just based on flawed assumptions, right? The work being done by like Ole Peters at the London Math Lab. Um, on ergodicity economics, uh, it, it, countless other things that being being investigated that way. Just we make really bad assumptions about how markets work, and also the nature of markets is changing so rapidly. Like, how could you possibly say that a model from 1970 is still the accurate way to allocate, you know, efficient portfolios? Of course, it's wrong. It may be a useful wrongness, but it's still wrong. Uh, and we're getting better and better at pointing those things out. And, and, and I'm very excited about what I read from sort of young PhD students right now. It's really interesting stuff. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? 
Zoomers, man. I, I, the, what I see coming out of folks under the age of 30 is what I really get excited about. Not, and, and I understand there's a little bit of a Pollyanna, like, you know, okay, here's the, you know, 56 year old dude talking about why he thinks the young generation is going to save us. I, I actually am sort of, I don't actually think that. I don't think that the, the Zoomers are somehow going to come solve climate crisis for us and they're going to come fix capitalism. No, I think they've largely given up and they're doing their own thing. And I think that's awesome. The music, the art, uh, the excitement, the the sort of rejections of systems from capitalism to to computer programming that's happening in that generation is phenomenal. I'm lucky enough to have two kids in that generation myself. I have a, a 19 and a 23 year old. I guess that's edge bottom millennial. I don't even know anymore. Um, they're not only are the kids going to be all right. I think the kids are, they're not going to care that much what we think. They're going to build their own world, and I'm I'm really excited for it. Okay. We're going to go to some short, short questions and answers. And since you said the kids are all right, which I will take as a classic cool album cover uh, reference. Yeah. What sort of music do you listen to? Um, I try to listen to as much as I can only new music. So um, I'm a big fan of uh, Sirius XMU on the Sirius channel. They're, they have a, a set of evening shows called Blog Radio, and it's just a bunch of music bloggers out there finding new stuff from you know jazz to experimental to punk to dream pop to you name it um it, it's you know mostly new music i've also been a huge fan lately of um title has a series called rising which i think they're about to do a big bunch of news around which again is curated right there's actual editors who go out there and find cool new music in any genre latin hip-hop whatever it is um i'm a big fan of the indie rising channeling channel on title um, really amazing experimental music being done from, you know, crazy electro pop stuff to just classic singer songwriter stuff that would have been, you know, we would have recognized in the 1950s, just now being done by 22 year olds. I, really up and down. I think that some of the best music I've ever listened to in my life is the last couple of years. How do you relax? Well, I listen to a lot of music. Um, I I do live in the woods and I spend as much time outside as I can. I would say the the shortest answer is meditation. Uh, the, the thing that it, I try to not skip every day is at the end of the day, I go and I sit on a cushion, I stare at a wall for half an hour. Uh, and that's that's really what gives me peace. So aside from Nolan Credit Swiss, what are you reading right now? Oh my gosh. Um, so I, like I said, I've been doing a fair amount of uh, AI reading. So Stuart Russell has a book called Human Compatible on AI um, that I read last week that was quite good. Uh, on the quantum physics side, uh, there's a great book called, uh, called Reality is Not What It Seems by Carlo Rovelli, which is about quantum gravity. Uh, it's sort of like, I would say, a third level book. Like you, you probably want to go to some of the the more basic stuff, like start with some Stephen Hawking and and then dig yourself down in, uh, read some Feynman. Uh, but uh, the the stuff that's going on in quantum gravity is like right at the thin edge of of my ability to keep up. And so that's that's what I like. I, when the math gets past me, that's when I know I'm in the right place. Now, you, you said you were a poetry major. Do you ever read poetry or fiction? I do read fiction. I tend to mostly read genre fiction, like very escapist stuff. I read science fiction. I read fantasy. Um, I, you know, the, I think the last great book I read was probably um, like Andrew Weir's uh, latest book. He's the one who did The Martian. What's the last one called? Oh, God, I have to look at it now. Um, Hail Mary, Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, which is just it's just bubblegum reading. And I love that kind of stuff. I don't read a lot of poetry, to be honest. I, to me, poetry is a spoken medium. 
uh, not a, not a written one, at least in my my consciousness. So um, I, I enjoy going to readings. I haven't been to one in ages. I love like poetry slams and stuff like that. Like one of my favorite scenes of all time is the beginning of uh, So I Married an Axe Murderer, uh, which has one of the best beat poetry uh, sticks of all time in it. So I, I love beat poetry. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Uh, sit down, shut up, and ask yourself what's true until you know. Which is not an original line. Uh, that is from Jed McKenna's uh, sort of opus on spiritual enlightenment. Uh, but I, th I think, honestly, it's it's the advice that I continue to give my kids. It's the advice I continue to give myself as often as I can. If you just sit down and calm your brain and ask yourself what's really going on, and just keep your mouth shut until you really think you've got the answer, I think the world would probably be a better place and certainly a lot quieter. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John McCumnick with our special guest, Dave Natick. Dave, as you've heard, is a unique thinker. Um, very happy to have had him on the show. Thanks, Dave. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I hope people found this interesting. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCumnick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higasa, John McCumnick, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening. Thank you.